Okay, we are in the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 17. That's where we are studying that book. So we've seen a lot of uh, weird stuff happening in the news lately. Um, which I'm not going to talk about, but I do want to talk about a little bit about where we came from and where we are as a people just to kind of get us going here. You know, when we, when we talk about Western civilization, it's, it's really common to talk about how we came to be, what we call Western civilization, is, is the blending of, of really two cultures, two traditions, two, um, usually it's identified as two cities. Two cities and what came from them made Western civilization. So the, usually the way it's put is Athens and Jerusalem. That, that those two very divergent and different streams came together to build what we call Western civilization. We live in a really amazing time because both of those streams are under assault. So we think, well, everything's turning against Christianity. Everything's turning against Western civilization today. Christianity is just one aspect of that. The, the undoing of reason and truth and the search for truth and all of that has fallen as well. And uh, it's not looking real hopeful. Hopefully the world will wake up and say, what are, we, what are we losing here? But when we talk about Jerusalem, of course, we mean Christianity. We mean the Bible. Athens is the birthplace of Greek culture. And so much has come down to us from them as well. And probably the most important thing was just formal reasoning, logic, you know, the, the exploration of ideas in a systematic way. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, you know, the West would not have philosophy as we know it without those three guys. And the pursuit of truth through reason was a key aspect of the development of our culture and our civilization. One of my favorite little books in the first century summarizes the Greeks this way. It says, the Greeks were the first real philosophers. They took great pains in reclaiming the domain of knowledge and mapping it out. They converted everything into an art. They found the confusion of oriental warfare and they evolved tactics. They found the Egyptians measuring fields and they built up geometry and mathematics. They learned writing from the Phoenicians, but they wrote. They found men piling chronicles and they made it history. Out of conflicting methods of social cohesion, they made politics. From theories of conduct and undefined right and wrong, they made ethics. Lastly, they turned the content of the gospel into theology. And if you think about it, that's actually true. When Christianity came along, a very Jewish book, theology and the, the amount of reason and, and carefulness applied to developing theological ideas came from them as well. So the founders of our republic, you know, they read the Greeks thoroughly and learned from them both the blessings and the dangers of democratic government, right? So much of our political thought has roots in Athens. And, and that author I just read, he didn't even address the advancement really in the arts. I mean, especially architecture and sculpture and um, theater. I mean, every culture has some sort of performance art, but the Greeks took that, systematized it, and made it a thing on itself, and that's what we call the theater today. They invented the play, you know. So it can also be said that though the Greeks were conquered by the Macedonians and then later conquered by the Romans, they gave their, their culture to those, their conquerors. So the Romans became more civilized and um, by Greek culture as well as the Macedonians. And the center of all of that was a city called Athens. Athens. And that's where Paul is coming. Athens was called the Eye of Greece, the Mother of Arts and Eloquence. In the first century, it was still a really beautiful city. Um, 
and the glory of pagan civilization. The Romans had such a high regard for Athens that they let it govern itself. They kind of gave it an independent status. The Greeks, you know, they built this whole mythology around the found, founding of Athens. You guys know how Athens was founded according to the Greeks? Anybody know that story? There was a contest between the gods in Athens, um, they, they were going to decide what Athens should be like. The gods were working on this. And Athena had her idea, Zeus's daughter, and Poseidon had his idea, Ariel's father. No, I mean, that's a... That's a <laughs> he was Zeus's brother, actually. So Athena wanted the city to be great art and learning, and Poseidon thought it should be commerce because it had a really good port right there, you know, the Piraeus, they call it. And Zeus said, whoever could grant the city the best gift would be the god of that, whose, whose name that city would bear. So uh, we know who's going to win already, right? Yeah. It's not called Poseidon. But um, <laughs> so this gift idea, so Poseidon struck the ground with this triton and this war horse grew up and he said Athens will become the greatest power and have victory over all of her enemies and this will be a useful thing the war horse and Athena touched the ground and made this shoot come up and it turned into an olive tree which is still a celebrated spot in Athens where this olive tree supposedly was and she said my gift is better than Poseidon the horse he has given will bring war and strife and anguish to these mortals and their children but my gift the olive tree is a sign of peace and plenty health and strength and the pledge of happiness and freedom is it not more fitting that the city should be called by my name and all the gods went yeah 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 Athena yeah yeah so that's how the story goes so Athens was to be a city greater in peace than in war and nobler in its freedom than in its power and the Athenians were very proud of this heritage the truth is, they became a brutal, conquering, colonizing uh, empire. That's what, the, that's what they actually turned into. So Poseidon kind of had his way. They were a cruel empire. I mean, what happened to Socrates in Athens? They made him drink hemlock, right? So uh, they killed their greatest philosopher. But the city itself was a marvel of artistic beauty. And to that great city then comes Jerusalem in the person of the Apostle Paul. So we know from Acts 17, 15, Paul was brought there, and we talked about that last week, and decided to stay there alone because once he saw the city, he was like, this place is seriously in need. And so he sent the guys that brought him to Athens back up to Berea to bring his, his apostolic team there, Timothy and Silas. So, um, so he sends for those guys. Verse 15 says, those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So now, in a sense, Jerusalem has already been in Athens a little bit because there is a synagogue there. But, but the power of the gospel of Jesus that impacted Western civilization didn't come through a synagogue. It came through the apostles. So Paul is the guy. And that's the Jerusalem when we talk about the foundations of Western civilization. It's, it's Jesus Christ and reason on the, the Athens side. So it's more than Moses. It's Christ. So when Paul gets to Athens, he immediately is just taken up with all the beautiful artwork and all the lovely statues and he just is taking like a little no that's not what happens <laughs> when we go to Athens we are taken up with the beautiful statues and all of that because they don't mean anything to us but not Paul because what he sees he doesn't see art he sees worship these statues were gods false gods and, and uh worshipped by these people. Verse 16 says, when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. 
there are a lot of idols in Athens. There's, some of them are still there. And, uh, and I mean, a lot. It was actually known for a city of idols. It was famous for that. The Greek uh, Pausanias said that Athens had more images in it than all of Greece put together. The Roman um, Livy, he said, in Athens are to be seen images of gods and men of all descriptions and made of all materials. And Petronius, who's a pretty funny Roman, he was a pretty clever statesman actually, a lot of wit, he said, in Athens it is easier to find a god than a man. So if you're looking for somebody, it's easier to find a god there than it is a human being. So Paul is churning internally. He, he's provoked in his spirit, it says. And all of, these, all of these people he sees are in bondage to idols. That's what he sees. And he's not thinking, what a lovely culture to have produced all these wonderful beauties. He, his evangelist heart is burning. He's not humbled or cowed by the greatness of Athens. It doesn't blow him away. And he doesn't wait for his team either. He just starts sharing Jesus right away. So he goes to the synagogue and starts working the marketplace as well. So verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. He's done that everywhere he's gone that's had a synagogue. And in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. So Paul is just having gospel conversations. He follows his usual pattern of going to the synagogue, speaking to the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, but he also is going to this marketplace every day. And it's going to take a while for Silas and Timothy to get back down to him, so he's just using his time well. He's not going to sit there and churn, he's going to talk. So he's in the marketplace, it's a huge, large, expansive sort of place, surrounded by these beautiful covered colonnades, you know, where they would meet and groups would meet underneath them and all kinds of activities were going on there, including various schools of the philosophers that would meet under these colonnaded porches, these big long things. And in verse 18 it mentions two schools of philosophers that he was actually interacting with. It says, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Wow, I just would love a tape recording of those conversations. <laughs> that, would, that, would be, that would be worth studying Greek just to listen to that in person. But um, I'd love to hear that. But he's dialoguing with people that were regarded as elite sort of thinkers in Athens. Two very different schools are mentioned here, the Stoics and the Epicureans. Stoicism was founded by a guy named Zeno. And the Stoics, they were not into temples or rituals, but personal morality was their thing. And um, they believed that God was an impersonal, he was sort of the soul of the universe or the soul of the world. That's how they, they viewed God. He was not a person you could relate to. But their guide was reason, not pain or pleasure or desire or anything like that. They exalted themselves. Really pride, pride in yourself was kind of the center of their philosophy, but they hated arrogance. They, they weren't trying to be arrogant. They just believed you needed to be, you needed to man up. That was kind of, the, it's a very manly sort of philosophical system. Suicides were very common among them because if there was no reason to live, then death was just the next logical step. The most famous adherents of Stoicism were Seneca, who was a contemporary of Paul, except he was very close to the Emperor Nero, who eventually ordered him to kill himself, which he obliged. And Marcus Aurelius, who is a, a second century emperor, and he wrote a, a book on the meditations, it's called, if you studied classical literature anywhere, you would have read that probably. Let me give you a little tidbit from Marcus Aurelius. Like I said, it's very manful stuff. This is what made Romans Rome, Ro Rome Roman. This is what gave Roman 
excellent Romans, their kind of character here, this, this philosophy. He says, take care always to remember that you are a man and a Roman and let every action be done with perfect and unaffected gravity, humanity, freedom, and justice. The very things we don't see in this world very often. And be sure you entertain no fancies which may give check to these qualities. This is possible if you will but perform every action as though it were your last, if your appetites and passions do not cross upon your reason, if you keep clear of rashness and have nothing of insincerity and self-love to infect you, and do not complain of your destiny, you see what few points a man has to gain in order to attain a godlike way of living. For he that comes thus far performs all which the immortal powers will require of him. I mean, those are really beautiful thoughts. And you know what? He couldn't live it and you can't either. <laughs> this, is, this is morality that God has written on the human heart being expressed in a pagan philosopher. But you can't live that. You're going to fail doing that. He says, if, 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 but we can't do all of those ifs. That's why we need a savior right there. In another place, he says this. This is a little more ethereal here. He says, the world is either a medley of atoms that now intermingle and are now scattered apart, or else it is a unity under the laws of order and providence. If it's the first, what should I stay for? where nature is in such chaos and things are so blindly jumbled together. Why do I care for anything else than to return to the element of earth as soon as may be? Why should I give myself any trouble? Let me do what I will. My elements will be scattered. But if there is a providence, then I adore the great governor of the world and am easy and of good cheer in the prospect of protection. So you can see right there what kind of made the Roman man, the best of the Romans, people that really adopted this as a, just a way of life, makes them admirable. I mean, that's a, it, these are character qualities that any good person, I think, would strive for, generally speaking. And it's also why the gospel would be so difficult for them to grasp or to accept, because pride is the center of that. And to admit to being a sinner in need of grace, which they certainly were sinners in need of grace, that's just hard to admit. It's hard to admit. In fact, Marcus Aurelius although one of the noblest of the emperors, was one of the main persecutors of Christianity during his reign. One of, the, one of the more vicious ones, actually, which is pretty interesting. So you know how modern atheists like to put billboards up around cities that says, you can be good without God? That's that sort of philosophy right there. They're talking about being good men, but they're not talking anything about being good in the way that God describes being good or what God requires for goodness or what we might call righteousness. The Bible says no one is good because the Bible measures us by God's standard, right? That's what it does. So um, Jesus, Jesus was good. Amen. Jesus was truly good. He is what goodness looks like. So if you want to see goodness, you measure yourself by him. And no Stoic was good like him. And no modern atheist is anywhere close to good like him. In fact, you Christians and me, we're not as good as him either. So um, we, we need some <coughs> grace. We need God's grace. Now the other group Paul conversed, his, conversed with here in Athens was the Epicureans. They were more like modern atheists. In fact, um, Marcus Aurelius is kind of alluding to them when he talks about atoms. Because they were, they were like materialists. 
Um, all of existence for them could be described as particles or atoms that are coming together and going apart. That's why he was talking about that. He was actually talking about Epicurean philosophy there. Life was a battle between pleasure and pain and life's aim to the Epicurean was pleasure. Now we sometimes hear the word Epicurean and we think of debauchery. The guy that invented this philosophy, Epicurus, was not promoting debauchery, necessarily promoting it. Pleasure to him meant tranquility, it meant freedom from pain or disturbing passions in your body or in your mind or your spirit and getting rid of superstitious fears. That's kind of where they were. He believed that traditional values that for their culture like justice and courage and temperance, those were good. They weren't inherently good, they're just good to have this more pleasant kind of life. There's nothing especially good about courage or temperance or justice but they help you have a pleasant life. So that's what he believed. Imagine sharing the gospel with an Epicurean. Where would you start and how would you do that? You know, it'd be a challenge. So Paul's doing it, he's trying to do that. And I actually think American society today is more Epicurean than anything else. I mean, uh, without knowing it, they don't know that. People don't know that, but that's kind of where it is. I think it was Francis Schaeffer that said the American dream is personal peace and affluence. That's what we really love and what we really care about and give ourselves to. I think he was right about that. When people think they are close to those things, having personal peace and affluence, they're content and happy and they don't need anything else. That's kind of where the Epicurean would be. Very similar. They don't care what God thinks of them. They literally don't care. It doesn't matter because they've invented their own God. So there might be a few Stoics among us as well, but I think we're an Epicurean culture. I really do believe that. Anyway, both groups find Paul very interesting, if a little odd. So verse 18. Also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. <laughs> I love that. Idle babbler. You know, in Greek, that, that phrase, it means, it, it's actual literal words are seed picker, but you don't translate that into English because we'd have no idea what that meant. But what it meant was, He's one of those guys that picks up a little bit of philosophy here and there and takes some scraps of wisdom and throws them out like he knows something. That's what they mean by a seed picker. He's just, he doesn't belong to one of the great schools of philosophy. You know, he, he's just sort of a grab bag kind of a guy. It's an insulting term. It really is. One who goes about picking up bits and pieces of great thinkers but really isn't one at all. Now the Athenians did have this heritage of great philosophers. So we talked about those guys. But First century Athenians, they were not at that level. I mean, new wonderful thoughts were not coming out of Athens anymore. So what they liked to do was just hold symposiums with anybody new that came into town and let them speak and then try to tear them apart. That's kind of what they did. It was called the Court of the Areopagus. So if some teacher or philosopher came to town, they would give him a good going over by having him speak to them. And that's what they do with the Apostle Paul. Paul is interesting. Whatever was going on, uh, they wanted something new. And he definitely had something new. Jesus? A Messiah? A resurrection? What are you talking about? Why don't you come and speak to the Philosopher's Club? So verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. That's that big, if you've ever been to Athens, down from, not all the way down, but down from the um, Acropolis where all the big temples are, there's this big rock. And apparently this philosopher's club used to meet on this big rock. Now a lot of scholars say by the first century they met down further 
down lower where the, where the marketplace area was in those colonnaded sections, which is probably true. So that they still call it the Areopagus, but that's where they met. That's what they say. So anyway, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? Verse 20. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. And then Luke says, <laughs> Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling and hearing something new. Now, that's kind of a cut, but that, that is kind of what they were doing. So um, Luke was kind of clued in on what was really going on there, Luke being a pretty sophisticated guy himself. So his comment in verse 21 suggests that the quality of philosophy in Athens had fallen quite away from the classical age, you know, uh, Aristotle and Plato and all of that. So Paul speaks to them, he preaches to the philosophers. This message, we don't have all of it, but it's very unlike any other sermon in the book of Acts. I mean, completely different. You know, it's not like Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It's not like Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7 where he speaks to the, those that are about to kill him. It's, it's very different from Paul's sermon in Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13. Why is this one so different? Because he's speaking to an educated crowd, but they know nothing about the true God. Nothing. These other people have had exposure to the Old Testament and that's why he usually goes to a synagogue even the Gentiles there know about the true God they worship him in some way and he can speak to them in, an, uh, in a way that they can grasp his concepts these guys have no background they haven't read Moses they have they don't go to the synagogue they're proud Athenian pagans so he has to start from scratch so he can't just assume anything on their part so that's what he's going to try to do here and we should pay attention because like I said I think American society is well, we know it's pretty biblically illiterate. People don't read the Bible anymore. Used to be if you talk to somebody, you could talk about their Sunday school days. That's really rare now. Most kids don't go to Sunday school or anything like that. So there's, there's just a, a lot of lack of knowledge. And, and again, many people have a worldview that's very similar to the Epicureans, just in a, an American sort of version of it. So the main differences between us and the ancient Epicureans is that we don't worship many gods, but we do believe that whatever you think about God is equally valid as what somebody else thinks about God, which is the same as having many gods, right? If you think that your version of God, even though it's totally different than mine, is just as valid, then you've already got many gods running around. Just in, in a, it's not logical, but that's what you, what, that's what, that's the polite thing to do. So functionally, it's the same thing as having many gods, so it's pretty similar. So let's see how Paul's going to do this. He has the ear of Athens, and he begins with a, with a hook, a little point of contact with them. Something to get their interest. So he begins on the theme of knowledge. Knowledge should be an interesting theme to a philosopher, right? That should be something that perks them up and gets them to pay attention. And he finds something that they will have to admit that they don't know. So in the city he saw a statue that was to an unknown god. So in case they ran out of gods and they had plenty, they, they could worship an unknown God to ask for favors from him and bring him things and things like that or her or whatever it was. So that's what he does. He's, and Paul's going to say, you know that statue to the unknown God? Oh yeah, yeah we know. I know him. That's what he's going to say. <laughs> I know him. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, verse 22, and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Pretty clever. 
So he's going to preach the true God as the unknown God. The Greeks believed in either finite little personal gods, you know, like Athena and Poseidon and all those gods, or an infinite impersonal god like the Stoics believed in. That They either went one way or the other, like modern people do. So what Paul does is he emphasizes God's infinite nature in contrast to the little local pagan gods, and he proclaims God's profound personal interest in the conduct of human beings. God's a person. So he's going to present that by just describing what God is like. God is the creator of all things. He's the Lord of all things. He's sovereign over all things. He is near to all men for he made us and he follows our course in life and he's the judge of all men. It's a very different being than any God they had ever considered or thought about. He isn't anything like the gods they worship or the gods they invented for philosophical reasons. So Paul starts with God's greatness, verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. This is a great God. Very different from the gods of the Greeks. And his point is sort of just a point of logic. The creator in he- of heaven and earth does not need anything from his creatures. He needs nothing from us. He doesn't eat our offerings. He doesn't live on our praise. He's not dependent on our affection for him. He gives life. He doesn't receive life. And all that we enjoy is his gift to us because he's good. Also, he says in verse 26, we are all made from one man. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, he's sovereign over history, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Right at the end there, he's actually quoting a Greek poet named Cleanthes who wrote a poem about Zeus, and he's And he said, for from him we we are from his offspring. From him we are his offspring. But the Athenians believed that, the Athenians didn't believe that at all in terms of uh, everybody. They believed they were superior to other people because in their mythology they sprang out of the soil. That's what made them special. And, uh, but Paul says, no, God made all people from one man. It began with one person and every other human being is related to that one person. The Athenians are not more special than other men. So God determines their habitations. God determines where they live. God determined where they settled, how their civilization grew. He's sovereign over all of history. Nations rise and nations fall by his will. We're seeing that in our own time. He is involved in the development and the movement of tribes and people groups and nations and where they end up. God, does God have a purpose in all of that? All this messy history that we have? Well, yeah, verse 27 that they should seek God. That's why, that they should seek him. The the suggestion here to these philosophers is that men have lost God. And that's why he starts with that unknown, that statue to an unknown God. Men are far from God. 
But he's not far from us. We are far from him. We don't know him. God is unknown, but it's not his plan to remain unknown. So these man-made gods actually keep people from finding the real God. Though he's really very close to us all the time. He always has been close. He's not far from each one of us, he says in verse 29. And then he says, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. That seems so simple to us because we have this sort of Christian history, so we, we see that as totally reasonable. They didn't. They, they should have understood that. How could such bright people think that something made by man is worthy of veneration as a god? How could they think that? But they did. God's offspring should know that God cannot in any way be represented by an image made with human hands. They should know that. In fact, the Old Testament is the only ancient source, the only place where there's any idea that idols are nothing. You tell me how Bronze Age people knew that. They're the only people, the Jews were the only people who knew that idols were nothing, that there was nothing to them. In fact, it mocks them. How did they know? How can the divine nature be conveyed by human artistry? God is not only spirit, but he's an infinite spirit of unlimited majesty and glory. And idols are how sinful men avoid God. They bring God down. They make him palatable to themselves. They don't find him through idols. They hide from him through idols. That's true whether the idols are wood and stone or a convenient God made to order in our own minds, which is what most people we meet do. I was a mental idolater as a young person. My own opinion about God held sway over my heart and for a time I was able to hold him off until sovereign grace came and attacked me. <laughs> That's just the human condition. That's why we need to be reconciled with God because we are estranged from him. Even though he is near, we are distant from him. So the Apostle Paul lived at the most amazing time in history when God actually broke through and made himself known to the world. He broke through this distance, this separation. He broke through this not knowing him to come here to make himself known. He came among us as one of us, the most amazing man who ever lived, true man and true God, Jesus Christ. So Paul had good news for the Athenians. Good news with a warning. Verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's Paul's introduction to the subject of Jesus. That's how he does it. There will be a judgment. A day has been set. I know, I know people just put that out of their minds, think it's, it'll never happen, but it is going to happen. And if indeed this is what is coming, then what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? What should we do about that? How do we prepare for it? Well, what word does Paul use here? 
Repent. Repent. That's the same message Jesus had when he showed up. In fact, it's the first thing he says in Mark's gospel, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's using that word repent that makes, that, that Paul makes really clear, he uses that word to make it really clear to the philosophers why God is unknown, why men worship idols, why though God is near we don't know him because we are fallen away from him. In our natural state, we are sinners unworthy of the living God who is holy and good. So the problem is our problem. The fault is ours. Sin is the problem. You know the prophet Isaiah said, Isaiah 59.2, he said, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So first we are idolaters in our heart and then we commit all kinds of violations of the moral law. And the moral law is written on our hearts. The, the, the whole idea of right and wrong, what we, whatever we call justice, whatever we hate that other people do to us, that's enough right there. You can measure yourself by that standard. Have you ever done that to somebody else? We didn't lose morality. We are stuck believing in right and wrong. We're made that way. And we all do wrong. Stoics, Epicureans, animists, Buddhists, Hindus, people born in a Christian home and raised in church, we all do wrong. We're all sinners. And there is a day fixed which, in which we must account for our sins before a perfect and holy judge. And Jesus will be that judge, a man appointed by God, Paul says. And it's pretty clear from verse 32 that following Paul mentioning the resurrection, he didn't get to finish his message after that. So he would have gone farther and hopefully he had a chance later that we don't know about. But the mention of the resurrection brought out the worst from these philosophers. There's a reason for that. Greek philosophy in the first century was pretty much committed to the idea that the flesh is evil, the physical world is evil and the spirit is good. And so when mentioning the resurrection of a body and that man's going to judge the world, they, they, they get kind of rude about it. Verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. Hopefully that conversation happened. So he wasn't able to talk about Jesus as the all-sufficient Savior that day because they start debating and chatting with each other and throwing ideas around and kicking it out. And uh, he, can't, he can't continue anymore. So he leaves. But some followed him to hear the complete message and they did believe verse 33 so Paul went out of their midst but some men joined him and believed among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite so he's part of this club this philosopher's club and a woman named Damaris and others with them it's pretty interesting that there's a woman there is she part of the club or is she just listening on the porticos you know and listening to what was going on there uh, who knows but so as we that's where the story kind of ends there. So as we leave the Areopagus, we can reflect on Paul's efforts to speak to people on their own terms, people that have no biblical background in how he tried to do that. They have no grasp of the living God. Some Christians think Paul blew it here. Like that was a bad, look, there's only a few people that followed after that. So um, they think it was a bad strategy. Luke doesn't in any way say it was a bad strategy or hint that it was a bad strategy. It's just Sometimes you get a lot of people to listen and sometimes you don't. And this time they didn't. Because the resurrection was going to stick in their craw no matter what, these philosophers. So 
You can't blame Paul. He, he got right to the gospel eventually. So I don't think he blew it at all. These are just scoffers. And in this chapter we have, in chapter 17 we've seen the jealous leaders of the synagogue in Thessalonica. Reputation and prestige to them were more important than the truth. In Berea we saw the noble minded who received the word with great eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Verse 11 of chapter 17. And here in Athens we just mainly see smug, proud philosopher types blinded by their pride and their philosophical presuppositions about the nature of reality that the physical world is evil and the spiritual world is good. So it was their ideas that shut God out because they were more committed to their philosophical speculations. They wouldn't listen to the gospel. They shut God off because they're wrong. Just as people today have ideas about God that are wrong and they shut him out because they're clinging to these wrong ideas that they have. But in each city, in each city Paul visited, God did call people out to be his own people. He saved them. He was gracious to them. Jew and Gentile, male and female. He opened hearts to believe. And Dionysius and Damaris, there's two of those people right there in Athens. I do have one question as we close out chapter 17. Why did Paul say in verse 30, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why didn't he say declaring to all men that all people everywhere should believe? Remember the Philippian jailer when he said, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he said, right? Why in Athens does he say repent? Well, that's such an important topic that next Sunday, we're going to come back and linger over verse 30 a little while and talk about repentance before we move on to Corinth in chapter 18, okay? You ready for that? Let's pray. Lord, it is fallen man's nature to be idolatrous, whether we carve a god from wood or make up a god to suit our own desires. It's, it's all a way to avoid you. But you alone are God, and there will be a great day where we all give an account. So I ask for your grace to see clearly and grace to embrace all that you've done for us because that's where salvation lies in the work and person of Jesus Christ. God become flesh to make known the living God to the world and to pay for our sins. We thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen.